everybody, and welcome to That's Life, the show where we continue to be heartbroken, nothing short of heartbroken. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, blogger, writer, general manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here every Thursday at 10 a.m., right after Charlie and right before Nachum's live lunch, as I hope to bring you a little entertainment, a little news, and a little relief that the life you are leading is not nearly as wacky as mine. Coming to you from the home of the Nachum Siegel Network on the beautiful Lower East Side, I am joined by Avrami, who's behind the board and very busy this morning, so my thanks to him. If you are a new listener to the show, thank you for taking a break from your day to tune in. And if you are a returning listener, thanks, as always, for making us part of your day. If Mary Mel Wallach once a week is just not enough for you, friend me on Facebook, send me an invite on LinkedIn. You can also shoot me an email, miriam at nachamsegel.com. I will not respond to you during the show. I'm not being rude. I'm just being honest, but I will get back to you afterwards. Please also follow us on Twitter, nachamsegelnet, all one word. And Miriam L. Wallach, all one word as well. Shout out, by the way, to everyone who has been posting and commenting on our app. We really appreciate all the feedback and the comments that you make in the middle of a show. Uh, actually, Bo Buzman, shall I say, that you can comment on the screen, the home screen of the app. Please make sure to do so. Last week was a great week here at the Nachum Siegel Network. Thank God our listeners are really enjoying the app. And Android users, uh, there have been kinks, but they're actually not on our end. And um, we've been working through them with Samsung and everyone else. My thanks to Rusty Brick. And uh, if you're a BlackBerry user, there's nothing I can do for you. You shouldn't be using a BlackBerry anymore. But uh, if you're carrying a pager, I also have an abacus for you. But either way, if you don't have the app, you should. Please make sure to download it. You can get the app for the iPhone in the App Store, and you can get the app for an Android in Google Play. Um. Yes, it is with a heavy heart. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no fortune cookie today, and there is no list of the national holidays. Tomorrow is July 4th, and the second part of the show, or the second and third parts of the show, I should say, will be devoted to July 4th. We'll be talking to, and we'll be talking about, um, American Jews in the U.S. military. But, um, in light of this week's events and the burial of our three boys, we are all feeling a tremendous amount of loss, and it cannot be business as usual. So while the rest of the show will continue as planned, um, I would like to introduce a voice who has brought us a tremendous amount of comfort and, and good advice over the last um, number of years, I should say, at this point, Zahava Fardman. She is the assistant director of High Lifeline's Crisis Intervention, Bereavement, and Trauma Department. I hope I got that all right. She is a familiar voice on That's Life, and a woman I've turned to during numerous challenges. Zahava, good morning. Good morning, Miriam. Um, I know that the last time we spoke, you you promised me that the next time you would be on, it would be for happier times and to talk about fun things, but unfortunately, that doesn't bring us to this moment. Um, that is true. I'm still waiting for that moment. And, and, I, and I welcome it. I think that my, my first question really needs to, is, is actually very personal, and while we usually hesitate from discussing something so raw, so personally on the so personal on the air. I do believe there are a number of people who are sharing the same feeling. And for me, it's about dealing with my own very selfish feelings of loss and answering my kids' questions appropriately. I would love for somebody to tell me how to answer my kids' questions, because they have really, really good questions, and I don't have any answers. Okay, so first I'm going to address your first question, because I don't want to ignore especially you, Miriam. We all have to give ourselves permission to feel exactly what it is that we're feeling. And if you're feeling a very 
personal um, sense of loss, I don't know why you call it selfish, you need to go with that. You know, as long as you're talking personally, I can tell you personally, I know you, I know your family, I know you where you come from, and you're a family that's very, very connected to Israel um, in a very, you know, serious and strong way, and you have a lot of family living in Israel and a lot of close friends living in Israel, and you feel this loss. I, I love the way you... Um, honestly said that we lost our boys. This isn't, you know, we're not talking about three kids in another country who were kidnapped and killed. We're talking about our boys. And you personally and your family being so connected to the land, to the people of Israel, it's no wonder that you feel the loss in a very personal way. And you need to give yourself permission to do that. And not to say it's selfish, but this this is me. This is who I am. And and I need to grieve as, as if they were our boys. And how do I how do I talk to my kids? What do I tell my kids? Um, very openly and honestly. Um, you know, I'm sure that your kids knew that these boys were kidnapped, um, and you need to very simply say that they were found, unfortunately not alive. Um, and for the younger kids, some of the younger kids, you can leave it at that. Um, but if they ask you what happened, or if they ask you, you know, you know, how, how did they die, or if you ask they ask you what happened to the kidnappers. You can say the very bad men who took them did a very bad thing and killed them. And there's no there's no way of sugarcoating that, unfortunately. I, I was taken aback by the level of depth of my kids' questions, especially my youngest ones. And now I, I will admit, and I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit it, that the kidnapping and the missing boys was very much a part of our home. As I imagine, it was the part of many homes across the globe because we all rallied together. We all felt pain, and we all felt the need to bring the boys home. We were doing things before Shabbos. We were doing things on Shabbos. We were saying to Hillam, they saw the, the, the three extra candles. And so my kids were definitely no Bedavar. They, they felt what was going on, and, and frankly, I, I've been under a tremendous amount of stress, and, and obviously it makes its way into the home. So I was still, though, regardless, I was taken aback by the level of their questions, even by my youngest ones, who who knew exactly. For example, my daughter who says to me, well, why have we been davening if they've been gone all the, the whole time? Okay, so that's a very big question. It's a very important question that children of all ages ask, and really children of all, you know, across the religious spectrum from the most right to the most left. Um, and that is what happened to the Tilos, the unanswered Tilos. It is very, very important to empower children. It's really, you know, when I have time in, in my next lifetime, I want to really, you know, spread this in schools across the globe, that children should be taught as young as when they start to say Moda'ani, that Hashem loves your tefillos. Hashem hears your tefillos and loves your tefillos and uses every single one of them. The challenge is we don't exactly know how they're used. Mm. And especially in a situation like this, when the answer, you know, when they, when they were found, you know, not alive, when a person has a report shalema, you could say, oh, you see children, kentalach, it's your tefillos. But when, it, when the answer is not, the, not what we were davening for necessarily, we need to empower children and remind them, Hashem heard your tefillos, loved your tefillos, and uses them. Maybe your tefillos helped them not suffer, you know, as the news came out that they were shot probably right after the kidnapping, that they weren't suffering, that they didn't suffer, that, that we, they weren't being tortured for two weeks, like many of our minds and imaginations led us to believe. 
You know, so maybe your tefillos led them not to not to suffer. Maybe your tefillos helped them be found. Imagine if these bodies weren't found and, mm-hmm. and, and the parents never had the, the finality in the closure. Maybe your tefillos will help the families have koach and, and strength and, and faith to get through this tremendous challenge. Your tefillos were heard, your tefillos are loved, and your tefillos are you. You just mm-hmm. don't exactly know how. Wow. Wow. How does a nation... How does a nation stop grieving? When does a nation decide it's okay to move on? I mean, we don't have we don't have seven days of shiva. When do we decide that it's okay to move on? So there's no there's no time clock. You know, I think for for some people it's different than others. For some people it's longer than others. Um, your own you know heart will tell you so. Um, but slowly we will get back. To normal functioning. That's really the truth. Um, I, I use this analogy. I think I actually said it to you last time when we were talking about 9-11, but I use this analogy a lot with children, and that is when you cut yourself sometimes so badly you need stitches, right? And it hurts so much. It feels like the pain is never going to go away. But what happens, you know, the gift of Hashem is that every day the pain gets a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less until you wake up one day and say, you know what? It doesn't hurt anymore. But you look at your hand and you have a scar from the stitches. This experience, I believe, will stay with us always. We will always remember our three boys. We will always remember the pain and the scar of these last two weeks. But at some point, it's going to stop hurting as much as it does today. Bringing back to dealing with children and their and their the way they're grieving just a bit, one thing also that I noticed amongst my kids who span different ages and different genders is that everyone is really coping or mourning in very different ways. And sometimes I wonder whether someone's lack of mourning or, or I don't, I don't know what the right way is, but I guess the best way to put it is lack of mourning or lack of depth almost is, um, is something to note, something to point out or something to leave alone. So, again, it depends, you know, on the family situation. And like I said to you, you know, your family is very, very connected to our sister Al, and you brought these three boys into your home, and probably your children will express it more than another family who, you know, it wasn't a, a, a part of their everyday lives as much as others. You know, that's number one. And number two, we have to remember that every child and every adult will react differently according to their own personalities. You know, I get calls from parents a lot, you know, my, my child isn't talking about the tragedy, how come he's not talking about the tragedy? And I say, well, you know, prior to this tragedy, when your child went through a difficult experience, how did he or she react? And, oh, yeah, well, you know what, he's not a big talker on a good day. Hmm. So then he's not going to be, a, you know, a big talker now. So children who can talk and who can express themselves, obviously that's the easiest. Um, but children who don't, what we need to do as parents is find other ways to help them express themselves and what they do best and what they like and what they're interested in. You know, I had, I had another mother call me and say, you know, since this, since this tragedy, my kid is just downstairs in the basement banging on his guitar. I said, okay, prior to this tragedy, what did your kid do when he felt upset or sad about something? She said, oh, he went down to the basement and banged on his guitar. <laughs> okay, then he's doing exactly what he needs to do. Right. Um, some children write, some people draw, some people music, some people will literally just take a ball and bang it against the wall. Um, other people, you know, maybe I would suggest this for your family because you are so connected, is to find something to do, you know, as an individual or as a family in memory of these kids. 
um, you know, when, when kids, especially older kids, are action-oriented, it's very helpful and it's a very therapeutic way to express emotions, feelings, you know, passions in, into an action. Um, and if it's actually something that you can send to the family, you know, it's, it's good for your family and it's good for their family and it kind of works all around. Um, but the key is to find a mode of expression for each person. That's an incredible idea. And when you talk about a mode of expression, we're not, oh, and I, I, I particularly appreciate the family concept because it gives the family an opportunity to have the group discussions, to mourn together, to be proactive together, or just active together. I guess proactive is not appropriate here, but at least active together. And give a safe forum, a safe place for everyone to express themselves to whatever degree they need. Exactly. And it also gives the parents some semblance of control Mm. over helping each child express themselves. Because if you choose a family project to do together, the family can give each child a job, first of all, according to their age level, but second of all, according to their personality and their mode of expression. You know what I'm saying? You can give one kid you know, a creative outlet. You can give another kid, you know, a writing job. You can give another kid, you know, talking about what they're doing. You know, really specifying roles for each child, um, you know, in, in the context of this family project, which is, again, therapeutic for everybody. At what point should a parent be concerned if that child, his or her child, is not moving on? So I always use the solution as, as a marker. Um, if by the solution, you know, the 30th day after somebody dies, if if a child or an adult is still having a very, very hard time, in other words, can't stop crying or can't think about anything else or is still very, very angry or very, very scared, very, very anything, you know, anything on an extreme, at that point I'd like, you know, them to to find somebody to talk to and to help them, you know, express it or help them, you know, get past this initial crisis stage, you know, into the other um, stages of of mourning. Hi, Lifeline Zahava Farman joins us. By phone, Zahava. One more question: as a, as a parent who, <laughs> the same day we put our kids on the bus to sleepaway camp, was shocked by the news that shocked the world. Um, how 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 do we cope with the need or the irrational need to go up to camp to hug our kids? So it's certainly not an irrational need, you know, you know, hugging our children, keeping them, you know, close to us um, is, is really our security and our, it's really our, you know, an expression of, of, of grief for us as parents is just holding our children close. Um, we have to, first of all, just believe that they're safe. You know, we have to have that in Muna, that Hashem will take care of them. Um, and we also have to believe, I believe very strongly that each person is in the place exactly the place where Hashem wants them to be. And our children are in camp, and that's where they are meant to be. That's where Hashem wants them to be. You know, they are meant to have a, a wonderful summer. They are meant to be children in a, in a safe, secure, you know, loving environment. They are meant to express their, their energies and their passions. And, you know, some children thrive in camp, you know, more than they can thrive in school. And the point is to go on. You know, that, that is the point of life. That's what God wants. You know, a very, I think actually I told you this also last time that we're called Yehudim after Yehuda because he had the strength after his, his brother was supposedly killed to go and look for a wife. Mm-hmm. We know that there are a lot of lows and highs um, for us as individuals, as families, as a nation, 
and to believe in ourselves and our children that we have the strength and obviously to have the Amun and Hashem that He's going to take us from the lowest to the highs. And we are certainly in a tremendous low um, as a nation. And God willing, what can I tell you? We need to look forward to a lot of highs. I, I apologize. I'm going to get one more question in. I was um, on the phone with a friend of mine who lives in Yerushalayim after the funeral, and we were discussing the fact that we are constantly checking Facebook these days. And right now, it's not about new news. It's about connecting. And I said that we as a community, as a Jewish community or as Jews, are now looking to find solace in social networking or, you know, social uh, media, com- uh, word I can't escape, escapes me now, but um, social media platforms in order to connect with other people who are feeling that same pain. Is there is there too much? Is there going to be a point of too much like overload from social media and, and from this from this point of view? So you said you said two very important things, Mariam, which really would be my answer. Number one. Right now, the pain is our connection to this tragedy. You know, we're living here, you know, in the five towns of New York, and this tragedy is in Israel. And the pain that we're feeling and the pain that we can connect to by watching the funeral, by reading the articles, by looking at the pictures online, you know, that's our connection to this tragedy. And the second important thing that you said is that when you go through something, really the best therapy is to connect to other people going through the same thing. So if you're connecting to others feeling the same way you are, via Facebook, you know, via, you know, online, whatever, social media platforms, like you say, you know, then for right now that's okay because that is somewhat therapeutic for you. Um, but remember what I said about extremes. <laughs> if, if, you know, you're online 24 hours a day, right. <laughs> that's not good. Right. <laughs> you know, if you can't do your job because you're so busy checking the Facebook and the, and the text and the online pictures, right. that's not good. You know, if kids are obsessively watching these images that mm. they're going to carry around in their head, that's not good. You know, so again, for right now, whatever you need to get through it, it's fine, but certainly in, in moderation and certainly making sure that you can function and keep up with your normal routine. Well, you were definitely speaking directly to me at that moment, and I <laughs> I certainly appreciate it. Zahava Farman. As always, a real pleasure to have you on. I appreciate your comforting words and your very, very good advice, and we are definitely booking something fun after this. Oh, absolutely. And Mary Thank you so much, Zahava. Okay, no problem. You're listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network, and we are ready for our next guest. Professor Jeffrey Gorak joins us on the phone. He is the Libby Clapman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University and former chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish History Society. He has served from 1982 to 2002 as editor of the American Jewish History, the leading academic journal in that field. He's also the editor of 14 books. Sorry, he's the author or editor of 14 books, and his works include A Modern Heretic and a Traditional Community, Mordechai M. Kaplan, Orthodoxy and American Judaism, that was put out by Columbia Press in 1997. And most recently, his book Jews in Gotham, New York Jews and Their Changing City, was put out by NYU Press in 2012, and it won the Everett Foundation Family Award from the Jewish Book Council as the best nonfiction Jewish book for 2012. And when I was planning a July 4th um, program, there was no one more important to me than to include, to talk about the history of Jews in the military, than Dr. Gurak. Good morning, sir. Good morning. It's nice again to speak to you in your your listening community. Thank you. Let me ask you, we'll, we'll start with this. Jews have served 
Jewish Americans have served in the armed forces dating back to the colonial era. Why don't we get props for that? Well, the truth is that Jews for a long time want to emphasize how important their military service was because it was an indication of uh, their citizenship in the United States. But in fact, Jewish involvement in what I'll call the military dates back to really the first moments Jews are in New Amsterdam. As you probably know, when uh, the, Jews, the first Jews arrive in 1654, uh, Peter Stuyvesant does not want them to stay, and there's a great dispute, and ultimately the Dutch West Indies Company indicates to Stuyvesant that uh, Jews should be allowed to stay in New Amsterdam. Stuyvesant continues to be a pain for the few Jews who were there. And in fact, in, in 1656, there is a, a small war between the Dutch and the Swedes in Delaware. You may not know that the Swedes were in Delaware, but they were in the 17th century. And the most prominent Jew of that time, named Asher Levy, um, wants to serve in the colonial militia, that's the equivalent of the military. Okay. And Stuyvesant refuses, but the Dutch West Indies Company intercedes again and says, since he is a citizen of this colony, he should be allowed to fight on behalf of the colony. Hmm. At that point in time, it was the only, time, only instance in the entire world where a Jew was allowed to serve in a militia. That, now, they had served, by the way, few years earlier in Brazil when the Dutch controlled Brazil, but the Jews in Amsterdam had not received the right to serve in the military, and yet in this colonial outpost, Jews from almost the very start have the right to, it's a great right, by the way, Miriam, hmm. to serve in the military. Absolutely. And I should also tell you that the significance of military uh, activity is what we call a community-defining situation. In other words, if you're allowed to fight for your community, it is a great statement of your, your equality and citizenship within that environment. So one of the hallmarks of the American Jewish experience is that from the very start, from the 17th century, whenever there was a war, Jews were allowed to serve and did serve, in many instances heroically, in the American context. So it's, it's a very, very big story in its own right. Wow. Wow. I don't, I definitely did not appreciate, definitely did not appreciate all of that. Um, are there other minorities within the patchwork or the quilt of uh, American history that can claim to have been part of every major armed conflict on behalf of the United States since its birth? Well, it's a very good question. And the answer is all minorities, with the exception of African Americans until the 1950s served with distinction along with everyone else in the military. You know, we've spoken previously about one of my books and one of my interests, I know it's one of your interests, about Jews and Jews, Judaism, and sports. Mm. Okay? So um, I was taught at Columbia some 40 years ago by a great African American historian who said that in America, uh, and it's really around the world. Wars and sports are community-defining situation. And of course, for him, the metaphor was Jackie Robinson being allowed to play Major League Baseball in 1947, two years before Harry S. Truman completely desegregated the armed forces. So that's the African-American experience. The Jewish experience is analogous to that of all other 
immigrant, I'll call them Caucasian groups, who had the right from the very start to serve arm-in-arm, shoulder-to-shoulder with all others, and blacks were excluded. So in many respects, when we talk about the beginnings of the civil rights movement, and you know, right now we're commemorating the 50th anniversary of the civil rights bill, right. also the 50th anniversary of the martyrdom of Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney. Uh, again, the military story is emblematic of where different groups fit within America. And fortunately for us, Jews have been allowed to fight in militias, in armies, in all our American battles as equals. It's a great story. Wow. I definitely did not appreciate that either. I would have also thought, I mean, from either a baseless thought or a very based thought with, with something with that, that has legs, that Jews would, have, um, would not have been accepted so readily since the beginning and more so would have faced a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism as being part of the military. Well, there are instances of anti-Semitism. There are some instances in terms of Jews rising to the highest ranks of the military, although I must tell you, although I do not remember his name, a Jew was a member of the first uh, graduating class of West Point. No I way. Think, I think there are only a handful of graduates, and a Jew is a, was among that. <laughs> so in terms of anti-Semitism, yeah, there could have been some sort of social anti-Semitism in terms of rising up in the ranks. And I'll say something else. In the culture of the barracks, you might hear all sorts of anti-Jewish statements or anti-Italian statements, etc. But to, to take my metaphor even further, these negative things can be said about Jews by other soldiers in the barracks, but at least Jews are in the barracks. Hmm. African Americans are segregated. Right. It's part of the very different experience of that group as opposed to uh, the Jews in the uh, uh, in the United States. Has that been a unifying um, moment for Jews and blacks in the military, that kind of association of the minority, that kind of appreciation of, I know where you're coming from. Um, has that been, for lack of a better term, a bonding moment? No, no, no. Jews bond with other whites in the military. The African-American experience is very, very different. Mm. It isn't as if Jews who are in us saying, let's open our arms and bring blacks in. Jews, blacks get the right to serve along with other whites in the military due to a presidential order by uh, Harry S. Truman. So, it's, again, it, it reflects for me the very different experience of Jews and other uh, white minorities, immigrants, and the like, as opposed to the experience of our most oppressed minority in America, and that's the experience of Afri- African Americans. Very, very... Very, very different story. I found that my situation, and by my situation I mean my father was a chaplain in the U.S. Army, my father-in-law served, and my grandfather served uh, in the U.S. Navy during World War II Mm -hmm. and was actually at Iwo Jima. I find that my story, my situation, is completely atypical of the, you know, quintessential Jewish woman living in New York in their 30s. It's, It's... while many people have family members who have served in the IDF, you can't say the same about about families who are multi-generational and been here for years. Mm-hmm. But you can't say that. You, not too many people can make that kind of claim. Well, look, uh, 
We're commemorating uh, a few weeks ago, 70th anniversary of D-Day. The Jewish story in the military is a very significant one and should be told. Now, it's interesting that you have chaplaincy in your background. So the chaplaincy is also a very interesting story as far as American Jews are concerned. And the following uh, takes place. Initially, the chaplains in the American army were all Protestants. During the Mexican War, there was concern that since we're fighting against a Catholic country, that some Catholic soldiers might go over to the other side. So quickly, some priests are rounded up and made chaplains. During the Civil War, initially, Jews want to have Jewish chaplains, and it's rejected by the War Department. Then a group of Jews go to see President Lincoln. You know, I saw the movie recently, Lincoln, and I always wondered how they were able to get into the White House to meet (laughs) President Lincoln. Well, during that time period, there was very little in terms of Secret Service. Wow. People actually walked in. Wow. And Lincoln says that Jews can have their chaplains in the military. So chaplains serve not only Jews, but all soldiers in the military. And uh, it's one of the parts of the, the Jewish story that although we are a limited number of Jewish soldiers, our chaplains are part of the American saga. And I want to say one other thing about, two other things about chaplains that's very important. One of the great moments for American Jews in terms of their acceptance in America takes place during the Second World War. You know, when we think of the Second World War, we often think correctly of the Shoah and what happens to the six million. Well, while this is going on, something very positive happens in terms of American Jews who are fighting along with their brothers and sisters in the American military. There is the story of the Dorchester, the U.S. uh, boat Dorchester, that sunk in the North Atlantic, I think it's 1943, it's a story of the four chaplains. There are four chaplains aboard. The rabbi is two ministers, one priest and a rabbi. The rabbi's name is Alexander Goody. He was a reformed rabbi. He was a disciple of Stephen S. Wise. Well, the story goes, it's a true story, it's an iconic moment in American history where the boat is sunk, and these four chaplains give up their life preservers, sailors, and they go down with the ship Mm. arm in arm reciting Tehillim Psalms, which we and Christians have in common as far as as the, the Bible is concerned. And I'm going to say that next to the raising of the American flag and Iwo Jima, this becomes a moment in time in America where Americans are saying Protestant, Catholic, Jew, they all go down together in, in, for democracy. And although we're 3% of the population, it's Protestant, Catholic, Jew. What a statement of equality for American Jews during World War II, and we come out of World War II as American Jews, not only because of the Shoah, but also because of our military service saying, you know what, we're on an equal basis with everybody else, and has a lot to do with Jews fighting against the ongoing social anti-Semitism, which plagued them prior to World War II. So never forget the Never forget the Dorchester. Wow. I taught about this in my class at Stern College at Yeshiva uh, uh, last semester, and I have to say there were a few dry eyes in the class. <laughs> or it's, here at the studio. It's a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great American story. 
It's funny. The I was... other, piece, the other thing, piece about chaplaincy sure. is I just want to mention that um, uh, Orthodox rabbis are very much involved in chaplaincy. Probably the most famous Jewish chaplain of the Second World War is my late lamented friend, uh, Rabbi Herschel Schachter, who died a year ago. Right. Um, and we were very good friends and colleagues at Yeshiva, who was the liberator, liberator of Buchenwald mm. and was a very significant moment in time for American Jews. Is, that's, that's very important, too. The other piece is, in terms of chaplains, is that Orthodox chaplains interact with conservative and reformed chaplains in serving in the military. And the, the, the rabbis who served as chaplains, many of them, uh, Rabbi Schachter, Israel Miller, sure. and others, they end up getting involved after World War II in what we would, might call interdenominational work with, uh, with reformed conservative rabbis. And the basic point is, although these Orthodox rabbis differ fundamentally on a theological level with conservative and reformers, there's a commonality of discourse, which I will attribute to, and I've written about this in part, from the fact that they were involved in the, uh, the, in the American military as chaplains. So this military story looms large. It's a big American Jewish story. Mm, that, is, that is phenomenal. Professor Jeffrey Gorak joins us. He is professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University. Professor Gorak, it's funny because when my dad, and you'll, if you if you allow me for a second, when my dad was getting smicha at YU, which mm-hmm. was in the 60s, there was a movement at that part or a, or a or a belief that the that there should be more orthodox chaplains in the US army. So if you the story goes in my family and if my dad's listening, I'm sure he'll correct me. But um, the story goes that if you were getting smicha, you were entered into a lottery. Mm-hmm. And if you won the lottery, you got mel- you were um, you enlisted and, and were a member of the military as a as an as a chaplain for two years. So if you were in the smicha program at YU during the 60s and you won the lottery, you would be going to the army. And that's how my parents ended up um, in Washington State. Right. It, and, and am I right about that? Is that the way it went? I, there always was a lot. I, I believe there always was a lottery system. I think the difference was that during World War II, if you can use Rabbi Shackton, Rabbi Miller's uh, experience as, as metaphorical, they were very anxious. They were very anxious to serve. It's interesting that you use the verb that you won the lottery. Right. For some students, they might say they lost the lottery. Right. Well, we always said it in quotation marks. I mean, when okay. you go into Fort Lewis outside of Seattle, you know, it's always in quotation marks. I remember as a kid going back with my parents, going to visit the base, not being able to understand that they lived there. Just it's because. It, because none of my other friends, I, you know, I was such an anomaly. I didn't have friends whose parents served or who won or lost a lottery in that case. Right, right. Well, look, the, six, uh, the, the wars of the 1960s, the Vietnam War, sure. is a very, very different war. And there are a variety of Jewish attitudes and Orthodox Jewish attitudes towards service, towards involvement in that war. And chaplaincy reflects that sort of... Uh, that sort of situation. So it's a, it's a it's a very very it's a very very different war. You mentioned um, D-Day a little while ago, and somebody I know who recently went to Normandy, who is a who's a Jew by birth and and very traditional, but is not a, a you know an Orthodox Jew and considers herself 
you know, not not as um, not as devout as as others, mm-hmm. said to me that she was surprised by how many stars of David, by how many Mug and Dovids she saw um, at Normandy, reflecting the number of Jewish lives who were lost. And and obviously, in comparison to the number of crosses that were there, they are far fewer. But nevertheless, she was impressed by even just how many she saw there. Is that a common misconception that people just don't appreciate the 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 involvement of Jews in the military that, that's been going on? Well, perhaps our contemporary generation, which uh, going back to the Vietnam, Vietnam War, where Jews were prominent as anti-war protesters. And in Yeshiva's history, Yeshiva was divided as much as any other community over Vietnam War. Forget about the fact that there's almost unanimity of interest and support for the good war, and that's uh, World War II. And although if you're drafted, you don't choose whether to go to, to fight the Japanese or the Germans, you know, Jews would have preferred to fight um, against the Nazis in the European theater. But I have to comment about uh, Normandy. Uh, for my 60th birthday, my wife took me on a trip to Normandy. I always wanted to see the battlefield. Wow. So uh, several comments. First of all, the, the fact that our guys, our American guys, crawled the equivalent of three football fields to fight the Germans on Om- Omaha Beach mm. is just remarkable. Yeah. Secondly, a good Jew named Steven Spielberg in his movie Private Ryan, you know, pans the the venue of the the great cemetery overlooking Omaha Beach. And being a good Jew, he was sure to focus not only on the crosses but also on the stars of David. And I was told the following that is really chilling, if in fact it's true, that over the years, the number of Magain Davids, that's not really a word, the of <laughs> Jewish stars that have appeared uh, increased in the 1940s and 50s because some Jewish GIs uh, didn't have H or J on their dog tags because they feared that if they were captured by the Nazis, they would be exterminated because they were Jews. And when they died anonymously in terms of their religion, they were buried as Christians. And when families came there and saw the, saw the crosses, they said, change it and, and put the Jewish stars up. Mm. So over the years, the wow. number of stars have increased, although I guess in, today that's not happening. And when my wife and I went to the cemetery, uh, as good Jews and as, you know, feeling uh, a sense of connection to these GIs, uh, we put stones on the uh, nice. on the grave sites of these uh, Jewish heroes who died died during uh, uh, during D Day and the campaigns that followed. It's a very it's really a very very moving experience. Wow, and that definitely huh, that definitely did give me chills. Um, with only a couple of minutes left, I, I just I I definitely want to hopefully broach this 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 topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wonder if it's my misunderstanding or just my um, ignorance, but I always imagined that there was some kind of a, um, a stigma associated with Jews serving in the U.S. Armed Forces. And, and we're very, very proud of our children who enlist in the IDF. And besides the ones who are, who are drafted, I'm talking about the ones who voluntarily dra- join the IDF and, and serve on behalf of Israel. Am, am I wrong to say that, that we don't, publicize or we don't get the word out about our our children and our family members who enlist in the U.S. military military armed forces as well? I, I, I don't think it did, there was ever a stigma attached to Jews being in the Army. Again, World War II, 
almost no Jews are conscientious uh, objectors. In fact, if you think about it for a second, these are the children or grandchildren of Jews who fled military service elsewhere in the world, whether it's the Ottoman Empire or, most importantly, Tsarist Russia. So there was great fear of what would happen to your children if they, when they served, but there was, there was no stigma attached to it. Although there's one other context, and I know we're short on time, and perhaps some other time we'll discuss it. Being Jewish in the armed forces is sometimes complicated. How do you observe right. if you're a traditional Jew? I won't even say an Orthodox Jew. If you're a traditional Jew, how do you observe the mitzvot while you're in this sort of uh, uh, context? Right. And right. Um, uh, one of my colleagues wrote a book, uh, a colleague named Deborah Dashmore, called G.I. Jews, about the experience of Jewish soldiers in World War II. And she has a wonderful chapter called uh, Eating Ham for Uncle Sam, <gasps> in which she talks about Jews who have to deal with observance of dietary laws and what's being served uh, on the menu, huh. you know, which gets us into the whole discussion of the levels of kashrut that a person could observe and what are the issues in terms of living in this type of highly integrative environment and maintaining your traditions. So that's another interesting sidelight to this story. And in fact, the more we do work on the military, we've moved away from counting the numbers of Jews who serve to exploring the issues of what does it mean to be a Jew in the the military. Hmm. It interests me tremendously. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Professor Gorak, professor of Jewish history at Yeshiva University, always a pleasure to have you on. Always, You always leave me wishing we had more time. I have to be honest. You and I, 60 minutes, we're just going to set that aside. I'm going to ask you every question I can. Sounds good to me. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Take care. Happy July 4th. Bye-bye. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and my second guest joins us on the phone from McKinney, Texas. Mark Liebman is a retired U.S. Navy captain and naval aviator who is a combat veteran of Vietnam, the tanker wars of the 1980s, and both Desert Shield and Desert Storm. He retired as a captain after 24 years in the Navy and a career that took him all over the world. He has just under, this is a crazy number, he has just under 5,000 hours of pilot-in-command slash co-pilot flight time in a variety of tactical, military, civilian fixed, and rotary wing aircraft. In the business world, he's been the CEO of an aerospace and defense manufacturing firm, an associate editor of a national magazine, and a copywriter for an advertising agency. Currently, he is senior executive with a global business process management firm. He's also an, an author. His books are available through Amazon and Barnes & Noble in both hard and soft copy. And he joins us now on the phone and a happy July 4th weekend to you, Mark. Happy July 4th. It's a day we told the Brits to go home. <laughs> yes, and we celebrate that. How are you? I am just fine. Thanks so much for joining me. There are so many things that I want to discuss with you about being Jewish and a member of the military, but I guess the first thing I want to do is just explore a little bit of your background, because I didn't appreciate until recently that for you, being a member of the armed forces is basically a family business. It is, um, and it's kind of an unusual way. Um, my father was a career Air Force officer, flew uh, missions during World War II, um, was in, and then stayed in the um, in the Air Force through the Berlin Airlift, the Korean War, and actually the Vietnam War. They did not participate in the Vietnam War. Um, and then if you go back one generation uh, back before that, my grandfather on my mother's side 
was a doctor and a physician in the U.S. Army, uh, actually prior to World War One, and then he was uh, in the Army throughout World War One, and then uh, went back into private practice. And then on, on this side of the generation, my son is a, a naval aviator, was flew F-18s in um, Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. Wow. Uh, and so uh, he is what was is a rear oddity and what's known as a third-generation military aviator. Hmm. That's incredible. There must be a tremendous amount of pride in that. Um, it's Yes, there is. Um, but there's also a bit of angst because... I know what he was he's facing having flown in combat and uh my my wife once told me that I can replace husbands pretty easily sons I can't. <laughs> that it's funny that you mentioned that because that was something that was going through my head before was whether or not it's either um a comfort or more or more difficult being the fact that you you know exactly what your son is going through and so you you understand his situation and and, and um, the the difficulties that he's obviously facing and the challenges that he's facing and whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I guess you answered that pretty quickly. Well, in, in reality, it's a good thing because um, my father did a lot of things for me and I did a lot of the same things for my son. And one of the most important things about it is you have to sit down and talk with him and get him to talk not only prior to, to his deployment and entering combat, but more importantly, when he comes back. Mm. And um, because then you can get out and dig, dig into the things that uh, are important. And, and as my father told me, if you're not scared. Uh... Mark? Mm, we lost Mark a second. All right. I'm here. Oh, there you are. Hey, okay, there you are. All right, there's something wrong with the line. That's all, all right. right. We'll pick it up. Um, you were saying, as your father told you. Yeah, my father told me uh, just before I left for Vietnam, he says, look, he said, um, if you're not scared when you go out to the airplane, or in my case, the helicopter, on a, on a, a mission, then you don't know what you're getting into, and you're in a danger to everybody else, and you need to find another line of work. Wow. Um, once you climb into the airplane and start going through the checklists and everything else, when I say you're too busy to get scared, I don't mean that. Uh, uh, well, I mean that, in fact, you are too busy, but um, it's still in the back of your mind. But you fo- your training takes over and the focus takes over, and um, the, the idea of doing what you're trained to do and you're supposed to do becomes paramount. Then when you get back, if it's, uh, if it's an ugly mission and you took a lot of fire, um, then you really are scared uh, mm. because you realize what you just survived. And uh, so it's a post-mission that's uh, probably the more difficult side of it. So what I did with my son, which is the same thing my dad did with me, is that when he came back from his first comeback cruise, he and I basically took a six-pack of beer went and sat on the beach uh, <laughs> and talked because we met him in San Diego. And, um, and I've done, done it several times with him uh, after each cruise. And it's it's a, it goes a great way because he knows that I know. Uh, he excuse me. He knows that I understand what he went through, wow. and that's part of the problem that guys who have PTSD have is that they have trouble relating to you uh, unless they're they're confident uh, that you understand what um, what you know, what combat is all uh, all about. Now, can I do that with an infantryman? To some degree, yes. 
Um, but to some degree, no. Can I do it with an aviator? Absolutely. Hmm. Wow, that's incredible. I Something that, that just occurred to me also is that while it's obviously incredibly unusual to have three generations of, of Navy, naval aviators in the first place, I would imagine that being three generations of Jewish naval aviators makes you completely an anomaly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not it does, as a matter of fact. Right. Um, although... Um, I wanna, it's really interesting the things how how it evolved over my career and also the difference between my dad's career. Now my dad flew in the Air Force, and in 1938-39, when he wanted to get into the to become a military aviator, uh, he applied to the Navy first. And the Navy uh, because the Navy had this thing called the Naval Aviation Cadet Program, which essentially you had two years of college. Uh, you passed the mental and physical tests, and then you went to flight training and you got commissioned as an ensign or same thing as a second lieutenant in the Navy, and, and um, away you went. Well, what he found out, uh, the New York recruiters told him that they were not interested in, in uh, bringing Jews into the Navy. Hmm. And the Jews, the Navy has traditionally been the least Jewish of all the services, if I can use that term. Interesting. So he joined the United States Army Air Corps. And obviously, you know, was quite successful. So fast forward, 1939 to uh, 1966, next is before that, 64, uh, 65, I'm, I want to be a military aviator, and the Navy is trying to recruit me. And my dad was um, surprised that the Navy was so open about it. Yeah. And when I got to Pensacola to go through AOCS, um, which is Aviation Officer Candidate School, um, they asked me, um, you know, do you go to services? And I said, absolutely. They said, fine. Uh, during the early part of your uh, uh, officer candidate school where you're restricted to the base, since there's a synagogue in downtown Pensacola, we'll arrange transportation to go to services on Friday night uh, and if you want to on Saturday mornings. Now, wow. Saturday mornings had a lot of um, activities that I didn't want to miss. So I would go in, uh, in into downtown Pensacola, uh, go to services every Friday night, and come back. Now, understand, we are, we, being my parents and, and my family, are reformed Jews, so getting in a car and, and doing this is not, not a big deal, right. nor is playing intramural sports on Saturdays, which is typically <laughs> what was happening. Right. Um, and, um, was not a big deal, but was really interesting. And then throughout my Navy career, I saw very little, if any, what, what people would term anti Semitism. What I did find, um, was uh, sometimes a fair amount of ignorance and also some strange situations, which I, I can share with you. Some of these are inc- actually incredibly funny, but um, one of which, which is in, the scene is in my first book, Big Mother 40. My first roommate uh, in the training command, you know, I've just shown up as a brand-new uh, ensign. They assign us to these BOQ rooms, which have a bedroom on each side. You share a bathroom, and you share a common area. It's got a little bit of a... Uh, a kitchen. It's got a, it, it had a stove top and a refrigerator, essentially, and a sink. Um, so, uh, and, a, and, a, and a fairly large common area, about 15 by 15. So the young man I uh, was with, and I won't mention his name, is from Tupelo, Mississippi. Okay. <laughs> and if you've ever been to Tupelo, it's you would call the Yiddish term is the fill of elk. <laughs> um, and um, he. So he was, like many aviators, it's the first time he, or young flight students, he was the first time he ever had uh, any money in his pocket, and so he was going to go out and buy a sports car. And, in fact, it was a used Corvette they wanted. Nice. Uh, we used to refer to them as Ensign Mobiles. 
Okay. And um, so he, he's talking about buying this thing. He keeps using this term, well, I'm going to Jew the guy down. Oh. And, and after about the third or fourth time he used this thing, I, 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 I invite him to go have a beer with me. And I explained to him, I said, uh, I won't use his first name, his real first name. I said, Frank, um, you keep using this term, what, what does it mean? And he said, well, you know, we're going to negotiate. And we we'll Jew him down. And I went, well, I, I said, I hate to tell you this, but I'm Jewish, and that kind of offends me. Wow. I said, I'm happy to you know, talk to you about it, but that term just really bothers me. And he looked at me as if I, I had horns. Wow. And wow. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't look Jewish. Ah, my and favorite. And I said, what am I supposed to look like? <laughs> right. And he described Fagin from uh, Oliver Twist. Oh. You know, eye shade, thick glasses, long hair, money grubbing, whatever. And he was, in, he was incredibly embarrassed. So you basically, so you basically become a one-man PR firm to undo the misconceptions that people have about Jews as you're going through the military. Uh, occasionally, I did, I did that. That was keep in mind. This is 1968, right? Uh, right. Which is about 40, 40 odd years ago, um, or just 50 odd years ago. Anyway. Um, but there, but, but some uh, of those miscon- uh, but some of those misconceptions, uh, some of those misconceptions. I mean, there are. There are um, ignorances that you and I face even today in 2014, whether it's somebody walking down the street or whatever it is, or just common interaction. I mean, I was at a business meeting an, about a year ago where somebody asked me if if um, was was convinced that my head was shaved underneath my wig, and I com- you know comfortably told her that it wasn't, but you know it was automatic that she knew one thing and that that we all must fit that mold. So I'm sure, especially in the military, where um, Jews are, do not have a strong presence, or some wouldn't, someone could argue that commensurate with the size of our population, we do have an appropriate presence in, in the armed forces. But either way, one person in your unit being you, you then become the spokesperson. Yeah, and, and again, that, that, that's degree that, that some uh, that's quite true. But again, I grew up in a military family where the Jewish community, even on the Air Force, which I, w- I would tell people it's probably the quote most Jewish unquote right. of the services, um, uh, you, st- you still always had that. I mean, we're, we're, I was always a minority in um, in, a, in a school a school classroom, and I was I didn't go to a yeshiva, so I, I'm I'm comfortable with that. And, right. and Great. while I my my religion is a very private thing, there are certain things that. You know, I do and I don't do, but I'm also very open about it, but I don't shove it in people's face, so to speak. So, for example, in the, in the military, uh, at least in the Navy, every, uh, every unit has a, an officer of the day, and it rotates among the junior officers up to a certain rank. And so what I would do when I would check into a unit is I would volunteer to take the duty, as it was known, on Christmas Day and on Easter Sunday. Right. And I, in return, I wanted Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur off, absolutely, and, and the first night of Passover. And so the senior OSH officer who makes out that schedule would basically say to me, I said, okay, give me a, you know, I make it out two months or a month in advance. When you get that point, just come see me, and I'll make sure you know, that month you don't have it those days. And, uh, and I never heard anything about it. And the, and the, the, the Christian guys were great because they didn't have to worry about having, you know, uh, having a duty Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and on Easter Sunday, right. and, it, and it worked just fine. Hmm. But what was also really interesting is when you deploy – and I'll make another interesting uh, a comment about this in a second in terms of, um, you know, who you wind up living with. So, but um, 
when you deploy, they have chaplains. It could be a Catholic chaplain on the ship. Right. It could be a, a Protestant chaplain of some flavor. Uh, it's rarely a rabbi. One of those two. And um, so um, invariably, the senior Jewish officer present is responsible for, or the senior Jewish member on the ship is responsible for coordinating services for Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, Seder, and everything else like this. So I didn't realize this. So here I am, a lieutenant junior grade on an aircraft carrier, which means I'm secondly a first lieutenant. Okay. And a commander who is a senior chaplain on board happened to be Catholic and walked into my our ready room one day and says, uh, Lieutenant, I need to see you. And I said, okay, you know, what did I do now? <laughs> and so he goes, so he sits down and says, by the way, uh, I just figured out you're the senior Jewish officer on the ship. We've got 6,000 sailors. There's 60 out of us or 60 out of you are Jews. And we're having a Seder. And here's my Seder planning checklist. Um, no way. You need to uh, figure <laughs> out what you want to do, what you want to serve, blah, 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 blah. I'll order the stuff. And we will, and the, the flag officer, the admiral, will give you the flag mess for a private seder. We'll kosher the kitchen. Oh my blah, blah, blah. Here's the process. And he's asking me all these things. I've never koshered a kitchen in my life. <laughs> right. Right. Um, I've koshered a kitchen, and, but that's a woman uh, thing. Yeah. And, and he said, um, he says, I've already figured out because, uh, that most of, we have a couple conservative, uh, uh, Jews who practice conservative brands, but most of you are reform. And, oh, by the way, do you mind if I uh, invite the captain of the ship who's actually expressed interest in attending the Seder? And I said, sure. So we literally had the Seder in the flag mess. Um, it was supervised by a Catholic chaplain. Unbelievable. Uh, cooked in the, in the, by the flag kitchen uh, by Filipino stewards who learned how to cook <laughs> a kosher meal. So this was their first matzo ball, basically. Um, actually, as it turned out, the... Um, uh, senior steward in the flag mess, one of his friends happened to be uh, married to, uh, happened to had some uh, Jewish friends, and he'd been to a Seder before, so he at least had a clue. Amazing. Um, what, did, so, what do you... And, and that's what we did. And so every, and, and behind the scenes, the chaplain arranged for everybody to get relieved. Mark, we lost you there a second. Okay. There you are. Okay. okay. The, the, the only time... Uh, I'd say the only time, but one of the times I missed Yom Kippur was, um, unfortunately during a war. Right. And it was in Vietnam. And so, um, the guys came and said, look, it's Yom Kippur, you know, like it was Russia Hashanah in two or three days. Do you want to take you off, off the flight schedule? I said, no, I don't want to impose, you know, force anybody else to fly additional missions mm-hmm. just to accommodate me. And everybody said, no, we're, we'll just arrange the rotation. You may wind up flying back to back. And I went, uh, but no, everybody else will take their turn. Mark, so what the, they did is, well, oh, I'm sorry. Go on. Yeah, I'm so, sorry. Uh, so what I did is I wound up flying uh, Rosh Hashanah afternoon, but not on Yom Kippur. Wow. What do you in, in, with with the uh, with the few minutes that we have left because time is flying and I wish I had more time. What is the hardest part, in your opinion, about being Jewish and being a member of the armed services? That's a very interesting question. And um, I'll give you a, a little bit of a strange answer. Okay. Um, because we're such a minority, um, I believe we have to be the best we can be. I know I'm mm-hmm. borrowing a phrase from the Army recruiting, but you've got to come to work every day and excel. Wow. Because you do not want to give anybody the opening that says, "Hey, you know, he screwed up, and he's you know he's a friggin' he's he's a lousy Jew and can't right. do the job." Right. You want to be 
the, the best that you can be. You want to be an outstanding leader. You want to be an outstanding pilot, blah, 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 blah. And I think um, by doing that, it, it guarantees that you carry your weight and no questions are ever asked about your religion. And one of the things that the military teaches you, it's a great equalizer, is we all bleed the same color. Hmm. Okay, you get wounded. It's the same, I don't care whether you're black, white, green, purple, whatever, Asian, Chinese, or Chinese, you know, Hungarian, whatever, Russian. We all look, you know, when a bullet hits you, we all look the same. Hmm. Uh, blood comes out and you're hurt. So, it's, like I said, it's a great equalizer. But the, the key, I think, is uh, do everything with excellence. That is that is really I mean besides the fact that in, that in in general that's a great life lesson but I imagine from here that's even more poignant. Do you did you ever hear the term? I mean I guess not because you're in a military family. But did ever, ever anyone ever say to you or your mother-in-law? And I'm sure your mother-in-law is a wonderful woman. But did you ever hear this is not a job for a good Jewish boy? I lost two girlfriends because of that. No way. <laughs> yeah, I had a, I I was madly in love in college. Uh, with a, a young lady, um, and she told me point blank, if you're going to continue going to mil- be in the military, we're not going to continue dating. And then the second one happens to be, <laughs> I won't mention their names, because it, 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 it's a well-known Reed family who have stores named after them. Oh, really? And her her father uh, told me, he said, yeah, it's okay if you go in the military, if you marry my daughter, but it, when you, you know, after your commitment is up, you need to come work for the family. Oh. And I looked at him and I said, as long as there's airplanes in it, I'm okay with that. <laughs> um, and um, so anyway, uh, the answer, yes, I've had that happen several times. That's interesting. And so I guess your wife knew what she was getting into. Um, sort of, but I think she learned a lot over time. So, it, and, and what about your son? Is, is your son married? Yes. And what, is your do- what does your daughter-in-law think? Well, my daughter-in-law supports him uh, 100%. Uh, the reason my son, after uh, 10 years, went, went into the reserve community was because um, he had just come back off uh, literally back-to-back-to-back deployments mm. uh, to the Persian Gulf, one of which was as a forward air controller. And if you know anything about what forward air controllers are, I they're don't. the guys who call in the airstrikes. And, and you stand there with the radio and, and the enemy, the, the Taliban snipers say, uh, basically say, shoot the guy uh, standing next to the guy with the radio. Mm, okay. That's uh, the forward air controller. So um, uh, he, he had a time, he had some very young children, and he didn't want to do any more deployments. Um, you know, at, the, at the, te- the operating tempo at the time, which was about five years ago. So he went out and... Um, uh, when it, it stayed in the reserves and now is a test pilot for Northrop Grumman. Oh, wow. You know, it's something else I, I just want to bring up, and I, I know I keep saying that we only have a few minutes left, but I'm having trouble ending the conversation because I'm just so fascinated. We think about Jews in the military and Jews in the, in the U.S. armed forces, um, and not too many names come to mind. Not too many names stick out in your head. And, and, you know, Chaim Solomon was a, uh, was a Jew who helped Washington in the Continental Army and he helped fund that. And that's a famous story. And then there, of course, there are the, the three famous Jews, including Albert Einstein, who were behind the Manhattan Project or in, in very much involved in the Manhattan Project. But I like to think of Jewish, um, involvement in the military as beyond brains and bucks. So, so are yep. there, are there Jewish, 
um, military role models that you think of, heroes that come to mind that you, that you refer to for yourself? Um, actually, yes, and there's hundreds. I would say hundreds, like in five and six hundred, wow. but in I would say there's several hundred. Um, let me give you some quick examples. At the United States Naval Academy, um, there are three buildings named after Jews. Uh, one is Uriah P. Levy, sure. the other is uh, Howard Mickelson, and the other is Hyman uh, uh, Rickover. Okay. Um, Levy, everybody knows about Rickover in the n- n- nuclear Navy, but Uriah P. Levy had so the, one of the greatest uh, or some of the greatest impact on the United States Navy. One of the things that he did was he ended what we now we would refer to as corporal punishment, flogging, right. which is a, a thing that we inherited from the, the Royal Navy. But he also created what we would now call a meritocracy in the promotion system. Now, it's not the same as what he did, but he started that. And he was also the commandant of the Naval Academy. I'll give you another another one that uh, people don't aren't aware of. Okay. Um, the backseater during Vietnam uh, for two of the Air Force pilots um, – who eventually became aces, was a guy by the name of Jeff Feinstein hmm. uh, from New York. Uh, he was involved in six kills. Um, the, the commandant of the uh, Marine Corps, I can't remember what, what number of commandant, guy by the name of David Marcus, um, became a four, four-star general I mean, the, the, uh, and became the assistant commandant of the Marine Corps. There are hundreds of, uh, uh, of these kinds of examples. Um, let me let me give you another interesting fun fact. There's um, I don't have the exact total because they just added uh, some number okay. uh, some people to the roles, but um, there are roughly 3,750 medals of honor awarded to U.S. citizens since the medal was created during the Civil War. Traditionally, Jews have been less than half of one percent of the total population of the military. It's skewed in World War II and a little bit in World War One, but it typically stays around half a percent. We have won almost one percent of the medals of honor. Mm, wow, that's an astounding that's thing. Incredible. The only other ethnic quote ethnic group that is significant is the Hispanic community, and they are actually after the white Anglo Saxons the largest uh, group of uh, people who won uh, the medal of honor. So my point is is um, uh, that Jews have contributed on the combat roles. In fact, another fun fact: the most senior officer. Uh, killed in the European theater during World War II was Maury Rose, nice Jewish boy. He <laughs> right? was a major general, two-star general. Incredible, um, incredible. Well, uh, and he was the second most senior guy because uh, Simon Bolivar was killed in, um, in Okinawa, was the only three-star that was killed. But you go through things. There have been some interesting stories like Martin Tibor, who entered, it took him three years to get into the Army, just in time for Korea, and then, win, then wins the Medal of Honor. Wow. And he was a survivor of uh, a concentration camp. Oh, wow. Uh, and, he, and, he, um, and he was also a POW uh, oh. during Korea. And he will tell you that um, uh, it was worth every minute of it. Well, I, uh, because there's, there's, he, he became an American citizen after it. Well, there is clearly much to be proud of. And um, this July 4th weekend, on behalf of all of us who are safe as a result of you and your your fellow officers and and your son and your father and, and everyone else. We thank you for your service and I thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. You too, Mark. Take care. You've been a happy holiday. You too. You too. Happy July fourth.
You've been listening to That's Life here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Miriam Elwalk. Thank you for making us part of your day. Let's go through the lineup for the rest of the day so you know what to expect and what not to miss. We have a full afternoon of programming right after That's Life. The live lunch today is hosted by Avrami from uh, 11-something till 1 p.m., after which the stunt show hosted by Mark Zomik starts at 1 with uh, highlighting the word achenu and the different ways it is captured in song. And then starting at 2 p.m., it's Throwback Thursday, Encoring Jam in the A.M. from years past, Homeward Bound with Yigal Siegel, Encores at 4.30, By the Book, hosted by Nachum, Encores at 5 p.m., and then Michael Fragan's Spin Class at 6 p.m., Charlie Burnhout at 7, wrapping up the lineup, and tune in all day long. Join Nachum tomorrow morning from 6 to 9 as he hosts Jam in the A.M. live here on the stream, NachumSiegel.com, Jam in the A.M.org. And don't miss the weekly update with Malcolm at 7.40, and Malcolm is in Israel this week. And, of course, Naomi and Table for Two tomorrow morning. An updated 2014 schedule is on our website, NachumSiegel.com. Click on the network schedule. Today I leave you with a song I played over and over again in the studio after I finished watching the funeral for our three young, beloved, and very heroic boys. It is thir- throwback Thursday here, and I'm going to be playing Miami Boys Choir, Bisiata de Shmaya. Never will we be alone with his help. We can stand on our own. Jonathan Play, you sound as great as ever. Happy July 4th, everyone. Stay safe. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. Can bring us success, but we don't understand.